Imagine your ideas outlived you by hundreds of years. Imagine if your face was printed on posters and revolutions across the world marched in your name. Imagine your ideas would lead directly and indirectly to the death of 200 million people. This is the complex legacy of Karl Marx, a man seen by some as the greatest thinker of them all, and by others as nothing more than a dangerous radical. In a dull cemetery in London, his stone bust stares out at the world, dreaming of utopia. Under it lies the body of a pauper, who had plans for everyone else's money, but had none of his own. This is Blind History, Season 6, Episode 5, and it is Karl Marx. Karl Marx is a controversial figure, and that's, I mean, to say the least. But I know that he's been one that people have really asked for. They want to know all about him. They want to know where he came from, what he did, what his life was really like. And they also want to know about his philosophies, because those have had an outsized effect on the world since he died. Not so much while he lived. But since he died, and with me, as always, is my co-host for Blind History, Anthony Miderer. Great to be back, yeah. Good, Karl Marx. I mean, what do you what do you think of the man? Let's start off there, and then we can get into the details. Yeah, um, very intellectual. <laughs> you know, my take on it is is if we were living in the 1800s and we've had a whole lot of Napoleon, you've you've had a whole lot of autocratic rule, the Tsars, the Kaisers, Bismarck. That's a bit later, but Mm-hmm. You know, the change in history, and I, it, it might have felt a lot better then, you know, and what he was talking about, because, uh, you know, I think through time, it was often that the the working class were downtrodden. And so there, there was a need for Karl Marx in 2021. I don't know. You've just sketched exactly the context that I was hoping you would, because, I mean, this guy was born in Germany in, in what was then Prussia. And... He was born to an upper middle class family. They were, they were Jewish actually, but they converted because it was really tough. Listen, I mean, from this point on until at least the 1960s, it was very tough to be a Jew in Germany. Um, and before this, obviously too, his father was, was Jewish, but he converted to Protestantism and his mother was from a wealthy Dutch family. But it seemed to me that this guy, his perpetual struggle wasn't the class struggle. It wasn't really any of his philosophy either. He was, as you mentioned, very bright, hugely intelligent kid and grew up with all of his teachers and headmasters and lecturers thinking he was some kind of prodigy. But his problem was he couldn't get money. His mother Mm -hmm. even said later on, it would have been nice if Carl could have earned some money rather than written so much about it. Yeah, 100%. Because that that was his struggle, his struggle his whole life long, it seems to have been based on where he could get some cash, who he could borrow money from. He was always bumming off of Engels, which we'll mm. talk about a little yeah. later on. But he was very bright, and he made an enormous contribution to the time. Uh, he was a, a critic of political economy. He was a sociologist, a political theorist, a philosopher. He was also a journalist and, uh, for a time, a lecturer in university. And it's funny that most of the Marxists in the world today are also either journalists or lecturers. Very few of them actually go into business because they have practical problems with business. You know, they mm-hmm. think it's exploitative and all the rest. But he was born into a Germany where, really, listen, it wasn't fun for the working classes. And there's no way you can sugarcoat that. It was just after the Industrial Revolution had started. 
Factories were exploiting people left, right, and center. People's standard of living had dropped, especially in places like Britain. They'd moved into the cities, which were hellholes. They were working long hours. Children even worked long hours. It was awful to be a worker. And a guy like Marx came along with these novel ideas about how the world could be better and what kind of a utopia they could have if the workers just took control. And it was very appealing to people. Yeah, and early on in his life, he, he spoke very much about more of a humanistic background and the way he felt about what you were just saying now. The one point I quoted is the brotherhood of man is, is no mere phrase with them, but a fact of life. And the nobility yeah. of man shines upon us from their work-hardened bodies. So he really was feeling with the people then. Later on, he was very theoretical and much more clinical about things. Less Much more emotional. clinical, correct. A lot of people spoke about him not really having a lot of emotion. But I think part of that was also, I think he reserved his emotion for his family. It's undoubtedly a huge part of Karl Marx's story, his wife, Jenny von Westphalen, who, who he was devoted to. And her parents weren't so sure that he was a good catch because they were worried, maybe they knew something we didn't, about whether or not he could provide for her. And uh, they were a you know, respectable German family, but he loved her and he stayed he married did. to her and devoted to her right to the end. Um, and she died. And shortly after that, his daughter died. And then shortly after that, he died. So they all kind of were in this family and hugely, uh, in love with each other. And, and I think when, when she went and when the, when the daughter died, he was just, you know, bereft. There was no point in living anymore because even all his intellectual pursuits and his, his contribution to philosophy and the fact that he had all these people around the world calling themselves Marxist, even within his lifetime. Uh, he always said, I'm not a Marxist, which I thought is interesting. Yeah. At his dad did say, um, he worried about Jenny and her future with Carl. And he feared that Jenny was destined to become a sacrifice to the demon that possessed Carl. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, that's an interesting statement because there are still so many people in the world who regard Karl Marx as the most evil man. You know, whether or not he would have agreed with the things that were carried out in his name almost a hundred years after his birth, because he was born in 1818 and the Russian Revolution was almost exactly a hundred years later. Whether or not Leninism, communism, Stalinism, Maoism, um, and other forms of communism all over the world would have been the kind of thing that he foresaw isn't it's a subject of huge debate among academics still to this day. And there are many people who defend Karl Marx. You know, the Chinese still regard him as a hero. There are statues to Karl Marx all over China, probably more than anywhere else in the world. There is one in his birthplace of Trier in Germany, um, which they kind of begrudgingly put up because obviously, you know, their experience with East German communism soured the idea a little bit for them. But it's starting to come back. And I tried to read a number of articles and books that were more complementary towards him, that gave a little bit more mm. balanced approach. Because I've always been raised to think, because of the people I've listened to and I've been influenced by, that this guy was a maniac. And what he was suggesting was, you know, the utter social engineering and complete destruction of the world's population for this ideal that was impossible to reach. But in in all the more gentle approaches to Karl Marx, I think people have largely said that he was a theoretical guy. He was a man who was a thinker, not a practical doer. He would, he would never have wanted to run for office himself. He didn't think of himself as a leader. And he certainly didn't want to spawn a movement that would be 
bastardized the way that it was. So perhaps he's a very misunderstood character in history. Mm. I think so as well. And, and often, you know, he was much stronger in a smaller group of individuals. You know, he, he wouldn't be standing in front of 10,000 people like Lenin might have been, or, you know, mm. he wasn't a great orator. But his approach was definitely scientific, the approach of looking at the way history dictated classes. As it developed and the more modern things became, classes were dictated accordingly for that era. I mean, his criticisms of capitalism are still valid today. You know, if you look at Facebook and, and Google and these enormous companies that are now conglomerating and buying up all the smaller ones, and they're just growing to proportions that even he might not have foreseen. But he said that was the ultimate goal of a market capital economy that eventually they would squeeze out the smaller players and these guys would become like states. They would make rules like states. And I don't think he was that far wrong on that. So we have to give credit where credit's due. Let's just talk about, he went to the University of Bonn to study law. I don't think he finished law, but he did start to earn money as a lecturer later on. So he may have, he may have also gone into politics and philosophy at that point. But what was interesting is that he also started writing and he started working for various newspapers. And it would be exhaustive to list all the newspapers, but everywhere he went, the newspaper was shut down for being too leftist. But not only necessarily for him, because I think during the time in Bonn and later on in Berlin, it was very um, volatile politically. He wasn't the only one. So he just. I suppose, fitted in very much with what was going on. He wrote very well, and it made a lot of sense. That's why he was accepted very well in the publications of people that believed in what he believed in. I mean, later on, he'd go on to write these political treatises, which we know well. But his first published book was actually a pretty anti-Semitic text, which was called On the Jewish Question. And even though he was descended through his father's side, from the Jewish people, he clearly espoused some views which were not particularly favorable if you look back in history now. And they're still used against him by people who argue that Marx was not a good person and that he had, you know, no moral or ethical guidelines that, that led him anywhere. He was a strict materialist. He didn't have a religious feeling, although he did get married no, no. to Jenny in a, in a Protestant church. And, you know, for all intents and purposes in those days, you had to call, call yourself something and he had to call himself something. So he called himself a Protestant. But really, his big preoccupation was controlling the means of production and allowing the workers to determine their own future. And he had this view that if if there was a classless society where no one owned anything, that everyone would be peaceful. It's almost like John Lennon's song, you know, imagine all the mm. people. And obviously I think even he knew that there were, there were parts of the real world that would just make that impossible. His ultimate mm. belief was that communism or Marxism in its original form would develop almost because capitalism was full of contradictions. It would happen to fill those gaps and that it would be an eventual thing rather than a revolutionary thing. A lot of the things, you know, we still hear very much around the world. It's, I think, the 10 immediate measures that he talks about from a progressive income tax, abolishment of inheritances. That's quite hectic. Um, well, we've got, we've got some of that. I mean, some of those became law in countries like England. And then a free education for children, land ownership, state owned enterprise, taking hold of the lands and using that rent to drive government. So government was more organizational rather than dictating 
policy. That was everything that he proposed. And it's still, there's a lot of countries today that are still using parts of it, diluted versions or... Sure. Even here in South Africa, we, we have, you know, supposedly free education and free healthcare for people. We have a progressive taxation system. So some of that stuff comes from this guy. He has an incredible, mm. long-lasting effect on society well after the time he's dead. And I wonder, and I think many people wonder what he would think of the movements that were established in his name much later on. But his personal life was difficult. As I said earlier, he was good friends with um, Engels, and he was very influenced by Hegel uh, when it comes to philosophy. But he kept on asking Engels for money. I mean, he met him in 1844, and they became lifelong friends. But at a certain point, he was desperate for money. His wife was very sick. He didn't have a yeah. job. And he kept on asking Engels to send him cash. And Engels' wife had just died. And he wrote this very like, angry response back to Marx saying, hey, you know, everybody else is giving me a bit of sympathy because my wife just hopped the perch. And all you're doing is asking for money. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and I mean, they, they couldn't even afford a coffin, to be honest. You know, he, I think his life was actually very tough. I mean, his, his daughter died and then his wife was rushing around looking for a coffin. They had no money, but he was, he was very uh, demonstrative and he really loved his family. So he was a, he was a very affectionate father. But yes. I mean, without money, I don't care how affectionate you are. You really struggle. No. And, and I think it was very hard. And I think in, in the end, Jenny suffered a, a number of breakdowns. You know, when they were in England, right? Uh, they were evicted from their house. Uh, often their belongings were seized. Quite tough going for somebody that's now revered around the world in the early 1900s. He was basically destitute. Well, to his mother's point, you know, if you're going to talk about money all the time, you need to know something about money. And in order to know something about money, you've got to prove that practically your ideas about money can have real world consequences. And clearly for him, it didn't. I mean, he wrote the Communist Manifesto, which is probably his most famous work. It's argued Das Kapital, which was a much later work of his, um, is, is regarded as a, as a masterwork of, of communist thinking. And both of them obsessively about, you know, the, the, the industrial revolution, about capitalism, about the, the, the employer and the employee, about exploitation, the kind of things that stand in stark contrast to the kinds of stuff that happened in the early 20th century, which very often weren't about those things at all. And it's ironic that the people who were talking about communism then and now and who are most interested in it are not usually the workers. It's usually intellectuals and academics. And they play with these ideas because they can. They have the time. They have secure jobs. They have that kind of uh, impact on the world that they can talk about these things in, you know, flowery terms, but never have to practically make it happen. So there are a lot of criticisms leveled at him from that point of view. It's also the people that actually use Marxism. So, so if we looked at Lenin, we look at Stalin, those type of characters, dictatorial, but using hmm. Marxism, it's, you know, in some way to feather their pockets. I mean, that was never his intention. Yeah, you know, I mean, listen, a lot of people have said that they're communists and really they're not the Chinese even mm. today. I mean, China, you can argue, is in name a communist or a socialist country, but in practice, it's probably more capitalistic than most of the West. You just have to go to a place 100%. like Shanghai to see it for yourself. I mean, you're in business. Yeah. You know how they supply the world with just about anything at any price. That's yeah. capitalism. They don't care about exploiting the worker, do they? Not necessarily. Not yeah. So it's interesting. He, he did spend most of his life outside of Germany. 
you know, once he and Jenny left there, they couldn't really go back because he was a an enemy of the state with all his crazy ideas and he was considered politically dangerous. Uh, they did live in Brussels for a while and Paris for a while. That's where he met Engels. And ultimately in London, he never really had great health. He wasn't a a fit, physically successful and happy specimen. He was kind of always a little bit sick. He had uh, many illnesses through his life. His skin gave him problems. Um, he had that big beard, which everybody remembers and which all the statues of him show and like very long flowing, quite wiry hair, but he eventually died in the year 1881. And the poor guy, I mean, Engels's speech included this passage from his friend Wilhelm Liebknecht, who said on the 14th of March, a quarter to three in the afternoon, the greatest living thinker ceased to think he had been left alone for scarcely two minutes. And when we came back, we found him in his armchair, peacefully gone to sleep, but forever. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he did have two surviving daughters, and he had two sons-in-law who were also in attendance. They were proud socialists. I don't think you could really argue with, you know, your father-in-law if you were them. And he had been yeah, predeceased yeah. by his wife and his eldest daughter. And really, he died a very unhappy man. He was very depressed. But ultimately, his contribution and his works have lived on far beyond his mortal life. And I think that it would be stupid for anyone to say that Marx wasn't important. Yeah, 100%. And his two great discoveries of the law of development of the human history and the law of motion of the bourgeoisie society and the fact he was also a revolutionary. He did have that part of him as well. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, listen, it took balls to stand up to the establishment like he did. And agreed. just as we, we look to people today who are willing to stand up to governments and to tyranny, and we look at them and we consider them brave, in his day, he must have been thought of the same way by people, ordinary yeah. people. Agreed. If you can just imagine killing a czar, he was moved by what he considered to be the selfless courage of the Russian terrorist who assassinated the czar Alexander II in 1881. Wow. And that was like a a preview of what would come a hundred years later or 50 years later at that point. Yeah. It's 1917. Or yeah. That's it. So an incredible life, uh, certainly a brilliant brain and someone who uh, is loved and hated by people who've never known him to this very day. Karl Marx. Blind history is brought to you by Taylor blinds and shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But funny enough, his first published piece was a piece of poetry that he wrote about his wife. Oh, <laughs> funny enough. I didn't know that. <laughs>